Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Jeff Cronenwith is an acclaimed cinematographer who's worked with director David Fincher on films like The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Social Network, Gone Girl, and Fight Club. Fight Club was his big break. He'd never shot a feature before. And suddenly there he was, filming a movie in downtown Los Angeles. Back when now trendy DTLA was, let's say, lively in a different way than it is today. I had my own little Fight Club um, when we were shooting. I don't, probably no one told you this story. We were shooting on 8th Avenue in front of this flop house, probably 12 at night, midnight. And, uh... I was standing next to the camera, and and I saw a little flash, and then I couldn't see. And uh, one of the residents of this flop house had thrown out a 40-ounce beer bottle, and it ricocheted off the camera and hit me in the head. They had cops on duty watching the set who ran to go find the guy who threw the bottle. But then the regular cops showed up. And I'm covered in blood, and I smell like beer, and they're like, how much have you had to drink tonight? I'm like, get out of my face, you know? Like, I love that. that you're like, what, how, how dare you? I'm making a $70 million 20th Century Fox motion picture, sir. Anyways, uh, that was a Friday night. I ended up leaving the set in an ambulance. I had 20 stitches in my head. Back on set Monday morning, no big deal. Just a little scar and some memorabilia. And another story from Fight Club. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. I'm Alex Papadimus. Your DP getting hit in the head with a 40 bottle is just one of the things that can go wrong when you're trying to make a film. There were so many different points where Fight Club could have crashed and burned before anyone even saw it, before it was even shot. In this episode of The Big Hit Show, how an unlikely piece of material and a director's uncompromising vision for that material somehow survived the Hollywood machine, some potentially disastrous publicity, and the disdain of a billionaire who didn't care for movies, especially this kind of movie. I shouldn't say this, but... I remember when the film was greenlit, David called and said, oh, the idiots have just greenlit a $75 million experimental movie. Chapter three, A Smoking Baby.
I felt the history of Hollywood is that people get afraid and stop making decisions instead of making more daring decisions because the daring decisions are what get you your new audience. So I didn't care. I thought something that made the pit of your stomach go kind of nuts is good. This is Bill Mechanic. In 1994, he became chairman and CEO of the filmed entertainment division of 20th Century Fox. His boss was... Murdoch, and Murdoch in particular didn't like what I was doing. That's Murdoch as in Rupert Murdoch, the billionaire chairman of Fox's then-parent company, News Corporation. Murdoch had acquired Fox in the mid-80s in order to strengthen his position in the U.S. TV business. The fact that Fox was also a movie studio seems to have been of lesser importance. How involved was Rupert in kind of the day-to-day aspect of the studio? Zero. We had a really kind of an increasingly testy relationship over the years. He hated Hollywood. He hated Hollywood people. During Bill's tenure, 20th Century Fox launched the X-Men franchise and put out movies like There's Something About Mary, Independence Day, and a modest auteur project called Titanic. No one in Hollywood, except obviously James Cameron, thought that one would work. It's one of many risks that Bill took that paid off. Not being just completely down the center was antithetical to what Murdoch wanted. And, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to to look at two words from Fight Club and say it ain't down the middle. So I knew I was in trouble from the get-go. He just knew that it wasn't going to play to his crowd or to him. I don't think he gave a shit about anybody else. Before he even saw it, you know, just what he heard about it, you know, we were in some News Corps meeting, and so you have to be a sick person to make a movie like that. In this episode, we're going to meet the people who were sick enough, sick of playing it safe or sick in the head, depending on how you look at it, to make a movie out of Fight Club which in the beginning, in book form, did not seem in any way like a slam-dunk idea for a movie. No big studio movie gets made without the right combination of people at that studio deciding to go to bat for an idea. My name is Kevin McCormick, and I was executive vice president of Fox 2000. Fox 2000 was a division of Fox that focused on developing mid-sized movies. Kevin was in touch with some New York-based book scouts people whose job it was to identify books that could be turned into movies, usually not yet published books. And one of these scouts got very excited about Fight Club. So Kevin read it, and Kevin got excited about Fight Club, too. It was an oddball, edgy, first book published. Uh, it had an incredible voice to it, um, and very untraditional, nonlinear, beginning, middle, end, with a wild, crazy ending. It was like something you hadn't seen before. And who doesn't like something crazy and edgy that no one's ever seen before? The answer is movie studios. They don't. So they employ risk assessors at every stage, starting with the book. Here's producer Ross Grayson Bell. So the studios have readers who read the material. And uh, the coverage came back damning the the book as a film, said it was unconventional, it was going to make people squirm. These were all the reasons not to make it. So Fox 2000 is getting two very different messages about Fight Club. They've got the book scout in New York flipping out about how great this book is, and they've got these readers in Los Angeles going, no, 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 do not. 
and both sides can't be right. Fox sends it out to some producers who have a relationship with the studio, figuring either someone will have an idea about how to make it filmable, or no one will, and that'll be that. Which is how it gets to a guy named Josh Donan and his producing partner, Ross Bell. So it was sent to Josh, and I read the book that night and thought this is going to change the world. When the book landed on their desks, Josh had produced one movie and was making another one for Fox. Ross had produced zero films. He'd been living off his credit cards and was $50,000 in debt. What was the point for you when you were reading it that you became convinced this is a movie? So I started reading the book, the unpublished manuscripts, and then it gets to a point where they're burning each other in cigarettes and they were quite sadistic towards each other. I'm thinking, oh, I was getting turned off. But I kept reading and then the reveal happens. And I fell through this trapdoor into this deeper world where everything sort of made sense on a whole new level. At that moment, it was almost like a physiological change came over me. There was a rush. Euphoria is maybe too strong, but there was something emotional that happened. And I realized then and there, it had to be a film. So Ross decides he's going to try to shortcut the approval process. He's going to show the studio that it's a movie. He hires four actors, and they record a table read of Chuck Palahniuk's Fight Club manuscript, which is not a long book, unless you're reading the whole thing out loud. The first read-through was six and a half hours long. Ross goes through the book again and cuts a lot of stuff out, including a lot of the material the studio readers were particularly leery about. He's turning inner monologue into dialogue. He's kind of adapting it into a movie script. And then he brings the actors back and has them record it again. It was about 50 minutes in length by the time we'd got it edited down. And this is what he sends to Kevin McCormick and Kevin's boss, Laura Ziskin, the head of Fox 2000. Ziskin, who died in 2011, was a very successful movie producer before she became an executive. You may remember such films as Pretty Woman. She was appointed president of Fox 2000 in 1994. She was driving up to Santa Barbara, which is 50 minutes on the freeway, just a coincidence. And she called me once she got off the freeway and said, I'm making this movie and you've got a producing deal. Laura agrees to option the book for $10,000. It's a tiny, low-risk bet that this might work. It's not the same thing as a green light. All kinds of things get optioned and go nowhere. Fight Club wouldn't become a movie unless they could find a director and a cast, and they'd also need a writer who could turn this book into a viable screenplay. My name is Jim Ools, and I was the screenwriter for Fight Club. It was widely, widely believed that this could not be a movie. That was the only reason anyone gave. This can't be a movie. Can't be a movie. All over town. Ools had also read Fight Club and Galleys and pitched himself to Ross and Josh as the person who should write it. Around the same time, Ools says, Meetings started to happen about who was going to direct it, and some of that was from who was willing to direct it. Not so much us, you know, or her choosing, but who's willing to direct it. Laura Ziskin wants David O. Russell, who says no. Basically, all the hot directors of the era say no. Peter Jackson says no. He's busy setting up Lord of the Rings. Danny Boyle says no. Brian Singer never even gets back to them. And it kept, I don't know, like a pinball going down towards 
scoring, you know, the largest score. It rolled, kept going toward David Fincher. David Fincher grew up in Northern California, in Marin County, just over the bridge from San Francisco. Marin is far from Hollywood, but Fincher happened to live on the same street as a movie legend, the Maverick director George Lucas, who had settled in Marin in order to make movies outside the Hollywood system. Fincher knew when he was eight years old that he wanted to be a movie director. After high school, he worked for a while at Industrial Light and Magic, George Lucas's special effects company. But he knew he didn't want to spend his career helping someone else realize their vision. He once said, quote, I didn't want to be the guy who's loading the magazines for the guy who was shooting the scene for the guy who had the whole thing in his head. I wanted to be the guy who had the whole thing in his head. In 1985, he directed his first TV commercial for the American Cancer Society, an apparent homage to Kubrick's 2001 that depicts a fetus smoking a cigarette in utero. Would you give a cigarette to your unborn child? You can draw a straight line from the smoking baby to the myriad provocations of Fight Club. Meanwhile, Fincher had also started directing music videos, which would become his springboard to a career in features and was how he met collaborators he'd worked closely with for years. My name is Jim Haygood. I was the editor on Fight Club. And um, I don't know, it seems like it's going to end up on my tombstone, you know, at this point. I was very interested in music and music videos, and this guy came in doing his first music video. It turned out to be David, and we hit it off and worked together for quite a while. The video that brought Jim and David together was Rick Springfield's Bop Till You Drop, set on a sci-fi planet where humans are enslaved by evil aliens until Rick Springfield arrives to liberate them through the force of his rocking. I don't know how much more I can say about that. I think David's trying to wipe it from his, uh, his resume. This, I mean, not this video specifically, but this moment was the dawn of the golden age of music videos. Video directors generally got no respect, especially in Hollywood, where they were seen as one rung down from TV commercial directors. But they got a lot of freedom to experiment and a chance to hone their skills in a low-pressure environment. By the turn of the 90s, if you spent any part of your day watching videos on MTV, you basically saw Fincher's work a couple of times every hour. Paula Abdul's Cold Hearted, George Michael's Freedom 90, and huge Madonna videos like Express Yourself, a lavish homage to Fritz Lang's Metropolis that cost $5 million to make, the most anyone had ever spent on a music video before. By this point, Fincher's videos were basically little five-minute movies, and in 1991, he was tapped to direct his first feature, Alien 3. It turned out to be a difficult project, that taught Fincher some important lessons about creative control. My first movie, it's fairly well known, um, was a disaster. Here's David Fincher speaking to the BBC in 2011. I sort of allowed myself to be steered into this communal making, and then when the shit hits the fan, all of a sudden everybody scatters and you're, you're the guy standing there going, wait, who's got a suggestion now? So if I'm going to take the blame, if I'm going to take the brunt of it, I'm going to make the decisions. Alien 3 is far from a disaster, but it plays like what it was. A movie that was reworked by the studio in post-production and cut down by 30 minutes without its director's involvement or consent. Fincher once told The Guardian, quote, To this day, no one hates it more than me. 
I've watched a lot of directors get kind of, you know, spun and, and worked. And I vowed never to let that happen. The studio whose interference reportedly made the experience so difficult for Fincher, by the way, 20th Century Fox. Fincher recovers. He directs another movie, the instant serial killer classic Seven, his first collaboration with Brad Pitt, which made over $300 million worldwide. Fight Club editor Jim Haygood again. I think they knew he was maybe somebody worth rolling the dice with. Fincher read Fight Club and immediately wanted to do it as a movie. What made it a tough sell for so many studios made it perfect for him. Reading the book and the language of it, I could just see why he was attracted to it. You know, just it's kind of irreverence and darkness and sarcasm and things like that. But he probably understood that it was going to be a challenge for a studio to get behind. Here's Bill Mechanic again. I thought Seven is great. You know, it's a smart film. About as good a thriller as has been made. Someone else was running Fox's filmed entertainment division when the studio put Fincher through the ringer on Alien 3. When Mechanic took over, he brought in a lot of new people and says it was essentially a different studio. But according to Mechanic, when he and Fox started dealing with Fincher around Fight Club, things were still tense. For historical reasons, or maybe just for David Fincher reasons. David was... You know, he's distrustful of, I'd say, any kind of institution, and particularly about movie people. You know, he's, a, he's abrasive, at, you know, he doesn't suffer fools, so he's not, he's not always sweet and charming to people. After all, if you're the guy with the whole movie in your head, you don't need anybody else telling you how they think it should be. And in order to make the movie in his head, Fincher was going to need a budget he made his pitch to the president of Fox 2000, Laura Ziskin. I said, here's the two ways you can go. You can do the $3 million version of this movie and make it on videotape and, and make your seditious little sharp stick in somebody's eye who may see it someday in some little tiny theater or maybe or may go straight to DVD. Or the real act of sedition here is the $50 million version, give or take. And to put movie stars in it and get people to go and, and, and talk about you know, this anti-consumerist rantings of a schizophrenic madman. So we, we went off and we came back, we had a, a schedule, we had a budget, we had a cast, we had storyboards, and we had a script. We put this giant thing on the table and we said, here it is, you have three days, let us know. Mechanic had signed off on the idea of making Fight Club, thinking it would cost Fox about $23 million. The budget thing, it did creep up from what you were initially... No, it, it didn't creep up, it jumped up. <laughs> it leapt up. <laughs> okay. And I walked out really pissed that it had jumped, and I was, you know, this was like, now, now it is hot water time. In her book, Rebels on the Backlot, journalist Sharon Waxman does point to one reason for the budget going up that Mechanic didn't mention when we talked. Brad Pitt, who the studio expected would cut his fee to do the movie. Instead, Pitt asked for, and got, $17.5 million, which instantly made the $23 million version of Fight Club not possible. Fight Club ended up costing around $65 million, 
which no matter how you look at it, is a lot of money to give to a director who wants to make a dark and relentless movie about disaffected men beating each other up in a dirty basement. Especially if that director is David Fincher, who now has everything he needs to make his film, but has no real interest in letting the studio in on his process. In Waxman's book, Fincher says that at one point he told Laura Ziskin, I'm not interested in making the movie with you. I'm interested in making the movie for you. In other words, please give me the money to make this movie and then stay out of my way. Producer Ross Bell again. I remember being on set with Brad Pitt and I said, we're going to change the world with this film. And he said, "Mm, we might not change the world, but we're certainly going to shake it up. And there was a true sense in the creative core of those making the film that we were going to push the boundaries, that there was something important here that needed to be said. Unlike the saga of Alien 3, the story of the making of Fight Club is not one of those stories where an overbearing studio gets in the way of a director's creative vision and ruins a movie. In fact, it's been said that before Fincher shot his movie his way, the studio, and specifically Fox 2000 head Laura Ziskin, requested they make only one change to the script, which led inadvertently to one of the movie's most infamous lines. This is what happened when we ran this story by former Fox 2000 executive Kevin McCormick. Do you recall this change and what the reaction was? I don't, actually. I don't remember it was the, I have to say it now. <laughs> That's why I have to be the one to say it. It's apparent in this originally written, the line is it's one of Marla's lines, one of Helen Bonham Carter's lines. Uh, he says, she says to Tyler Durden, I want to have your abortion. Right. <laughs> Laura Ziskin said anything but that, supposedly. And <laughs> then uh, I guess I don't know. We don't know exactly who came up with the alternative. Uh, you're going to make me say it. <laughs> it's fine. I remember as you say it, I don't remember what the, the revised line was. It's, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. (laughs) That sounds like a Fincher line. Virtually everything else was shot as scripted. Bitch tits, several different kinds of cancer jokes, cops trying to castrate Edward Norton, the line about the cream of mushroom soup. A lot of what makes Fight Club Fight Club was in Jim Uhl's original screenplay and before that in Chuck Palahniuk's book. But once David Fincher signed on to do the movie, he brought in another writer, Andrew Kevin Walker. I was just kind of a conduit to making sure that Brad and Edward and and Helena, you know, and obviously David, were all happy with what was being said by their characters and also how it was being said. Walker was relatively new to the business. He had been working at Tower Records just a few years earlier until he sold his first screenplay which became David Fincher's hit movie, Seven. I spent probably about a month rewriting with Fincher and Brad. Then Edward joined the party, and then Helena, which probably was a week or two at the end. So everyone got to kind of jump on board the train as it sped down the tracks. That involved a lot of Nerf football and Mountain Dew. They spent about a month working out of Brad Pitt's house and then moved to an actual office on the top floor of a building directly across the street from the world-famous Chinese theater in Hollywood. And while Walker, Fincher, and the actors ended up generating a lot of material that's not in the finished movie, 
Walker says all those hours of tossing a Nerf ball around helped them dial into what the story was actually about. I have this file that's called the Mammoth Rant. We were big fans of Mammoth. I really loved Glengarry Glen Ross. It was kind of like trying to set the bar high for us to take some of the ideas that were um, being voiced through Tyler in the book and distill them down. And I remember for a while there we were talking about why do men know what dust ruffles are? Again, everything is going remarkably well. You're shooting Nerf hoops, you're getting into the real nuances of the linen closet and how its contents relate to the consumerist soul death of modern man. Good times. Walker stuck around once the movie started shooting, generating whatever kind of extra writing was needed in the moment, including headlines for the Project Mayhem-related news articles that Brad Pitt clips from the paper and pins to the walls. I just wrote tons of headlines. Some of them, you know, just kind of made sense, and some of them were just there to amuse me and to try and make David laugh. Dog show spoiled by pranksters. Police seize excrement catapult. Suspect still at large. Pie-throwing terrorists disrupt sci-fi convention. Mimes attacked in public park was one of the headlines. Um, this is one of the ones I was proudest of. Professor in stable condition after weather machine hoax. And I see I had a little note here at the bottom that says, plenty more where these came from. Fight Club took 138 days to shoot. Fincher is one of those directors who famously does a million takes of a scene until he's happy with it, and that meant Norton and Pitt and various stunt performers spent a lot of time brawling bare-knuckled and sustaining all kinds of injuries. Ed Norton later revealed that at one point he broke his thumb on Brad Pitt's abs. During the course of the shoot, some people from the studio got to see dailies, compilations of raw footage, but Fincher mostly managed to keep Fox executives at arm's length. When principal photography was finished at the end of 1998, the production moved into a new headquarters that editor Jim Haygood compares to the Paper Street house, where Tyler Durden lives in the movie. I mean, normally, you know, the previous films were done just out of a guest house at, at David's place, but this was about two blocks from his house. It was just a big, uh, empty Tudor mansion. And... As I remember it, it had been owned by one of the attorneys on the Menendez brothers' trial, you know, the guys that murdered their parents in Beverly Hills. And so this house was there, and we moved into it, and it was still furnished and clothes in the closets. And, and I mean, it was very paper street. We were upstairs editing, and downstairs were assistants. So they'd be in there working all hours, you know, with lights in their stands and the neighbors started to complain because they thought that, that we were shooting pornos in the, in, the, in the living room. During post-production, screenwriter Jim Ools went to Fincher's house for a meeting. This ended up being the first time he saw any part of Fight Club. He showed me on you know, a big screen the first half of his rough cut. And that's when I got blown away how everything looked and felt like what I saw and felt when I was writing it. I couldn't believe it. Every decision was right. Every piece of casting, every camera angle, every scene transition, everything was right. And then I went to the screening of the full rough cut. The screening Jim is referring to took place on the 20th Century Fox lot in Century City in early 1999. Most of the executives we've been talking to and about were there, including Bill Mechanic, Laura Ziskin, and Kevin McCormick. 
It was the first time anybody from Fox really got a look at what Fincher had done with their $65 million. Jim Ools says seeing it in that context was a very different experience. It was a daytime screening, and I, I don't drink in the day, but I went back to my place and I started drinking. Because <laughs> I just thought, I mean, I love it, but, you know, the world's not made up of billions of Jim Ools, so uh, I didn't know what would happen. One thing's for sure, the executive tier at Fox was not made up of Jim Ools-type people. Former Fox 2000 executive Kevin McCormick. Fox, in certain ways, is a, is a very traditional company. So it was kind of ironic that, you know, um, for one of the companies that was a little more buttoned down was the place in which we were endeavoring to turn this into a motion picture. Fight Club editor Jim Haygood. Those are always kind of a tense moment, you know, because the studio is going to look for evidence that their complaints are valid, you know, that that's kind of, you know, what you're up against. The movie Fincher screened at Fox that day was basically Fight Club as we know it, except it was about 15 minutes longer and the fight scenes were even more brutal. Fight Club producer Art Linson was also at this screening. In his book, What Just Happened, a memoir of his years at 20th Century Fox, he says that after Marla Singer's memorable entrance in the support group scene, This is cancer, right? The audience went dead silent for the remainder of the first hour of the film. No laughs. No movement. In the second hour, Linson writes, I began to notice that some of the women and a couple of the men would occasionally jerk their heads backward, a sudden tick-like movement, as if they were trying to avoid a collision. During one particularly bloody beatdown scene, Linson writes, quote, A young assistant to Ziskin put her hands over her eyes and dropped her head. I was getting apprehensive, but I could tell they were jolted. After the scene where Brad Pitt burns the back of Ed Norton's hand with lie, Linson remembers looking over at Fincher. He was curiously relaxed, Linson writes. He looked like a man who was getting his money's worth. He wasn't at all concerned if the impact of what he had done was gratifying to them or not. He knew he was doing something to these onlookers, something darkly powerful, and that pleased him. It was quiet, but I got to, you know, I was quiet. I was like, whoa. It was assaultive. Former Fox executive Bill Mechanic. The violence was over the top. And it was pretty stunning, you know, like at that cut of the movie, it's a whole other level. I'm sitting here going, okay, this is going to be David and my first fight. And as the audience left, David just said, I need a couple hours to think about this. So I never even did. By the time he called me, he says, yeah, I'm going to cut some of this. And um, he did all the cuts. Fincher ended up trimming some of the more graphic moments from scenes like Edward Norton's fight with Jared Leto's character, Angel Face. There's a piece of that scene as a, you know, Angel Face is getting, you know, Jared Leto's getting pummeled it a little bit like uh, too much, let's say. It's still one of the most viscerally upsetting fights in Fight Club, but in the finished movie, its real impact comes later, when Fincher shows us Angel Face stitched up like Frankenstein. 
While certain scenes were toned down in the finished film, nothing Fox or even Fincher could have done at this point could really change what Fight Club was, a confrontational bloody movie that shows its audience very little mercy. Years later, speaking to Sharon Waxman for her book, Laura Ziskin said this about seeing the movie for the first time. Quote, I was afraid of it. I thought it was really smart, it had real ideas in it, and that's hard. I was afraid. Could we sell it? I was always afraid of that. Selling this movie would indeed turn out to be difficult, but in the meantime, things were about to get more complicated in ways neither the studio nor control freak David Fincher could ever have anticipated. The scene outside Columbine High School in Littleton, where shortly after 11, Mountain Time, uh, about 11.15, students first heard shots. Two young men in long black trench coats wearing masks, according to reports, uh, came in the school and started shooting. The massacre at Columbine, a public high school in Colorado, was, at the time, the deadliest school shooting in American history. Two students, heavily armed, shot and killed 12 classmates and one teacher and injured another 23 people before killing themselves. You know, it's almost hard to describe the situation around here. It is so chaotic. Kids are shaking, they're crying, they're screaming. None of them have ever seen anything like this. It's just a very, very sad moment here. And I think a lot of, a lot of what we were told at first about the Columbine shooters would turn out to be wrong, or at least unsupported by concrete evidence. They were not part of a group called the Trenchcoat Mafia, and there's no proof that violent movies or music inspired them to kill their classmates. But at the time, Americans not yet accustomed to school shootings as a grim fact of modern life were looking for answers, and politicians were only too happy to point the finger at pop culture. When our culture romanticizes and glorifies violence on TV, in the movies, on the internet, in songs, and when there are video games that you win based on how many people you kill, then I think the evidence is absolutely clear. Our children become desensitized to violence and lose their empathy for fellow human beings. Former Fox executive Bill Mechanic. To me, there was no question they were gonna, they would go after something like Fight Club. After Columbine happened in April 1999, the release of Fight Club, which had been scheduled for July, was pushed to October. No one said this was about Columbine, the studio said it was about giving Fincher time to trim his overlong initial cut. But as writer Brian Raftery points out in the Great Fight Club chapter of his book Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen, the move to October ended up putting some distance between Fight Club and another shocking real-life event, one that mirrored the film's themes much more closely than Columbine did. At the end of July, the music festival Woodstock 99 took place in upstate New York. How many people here ever woke up one morning and just decided it wasn't one of those days and you're going to break some shit? That's Fred Durst, chief meathead of rap rockers Limp Bizkit, during their Saturday night Woodstock set. Much of the violence, sexual assaults, fires, looting, property destruction, and general chaos that made this Woodstock infamous didn't take place until Sunday. But a lot of the blame for what happened at Woodstock 99 would be laid at Durst's feet. Because after all, he was a guy with a microphone telling tens of thousands of people to unleash their rage. If Fight Club, 
a movie about angry young men banding together to wreak havoc on consumer society, had been in theaters when Woodstock 99 happened, there's no way the movie could have escaped association with the riots. So the move from July to October had saved the movie from death by think piece. But Bill Mechanic knew he'd still have to take action to prevent Fight Club from becoming a political football when it did come out. Was there concern in town at that time about the possibility of uh, regulation or about the government getting involved with the content of movies in a more intense way than they had? No, but it was it's not something you want to ferment. Mechanic didn't and still doesn't think there was anything irresponsible about Fight Club, but he knew that wouldn't matter if politicians looking for something other than guns to talk about in the wake of Columbine decided to scapegoat 20th Century Fox. You don't want to be the guy whose risky, expensive movie puts the studio in the hot seat, especially if you're Bill and your boss Rupert Murdoch already doesn't like you. So Bill took an unusual step. He brought Fight Club to Capitol Hill. I sent our lobbyists in there. I held screenings in in Washington because I didn't want what was starting to happen, which was to become a poster child from people who hadn't seen it. I'm sure you may have seen there's a new movie out called Fight Club. Have you heard of this movie? Apparently, it's just young men beating each other and maiming each other. I, I don't know what the point is there. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Arizona senator and then presidential candidate John McCain. But I do believe we should try to prevail on Hollywood and the entertainment people to restrain some of the product that they are putting out. Actually got into an open argument with John McClain who was ready to turn us into a poster child, then he hadn't seen the movie. You don't want Washington to interfere because they don't give a shit half of them what they're saying. People want to stop violence and do something about gun control. There was one more hurdle the studio and David Fincher had to overcome before October. They'd saved the film from being damned by association with Columbine and Woodstock 99, but now they had to sell it to moviegoers. And it soon became clear that Fincher and the studio had very different ideas about how to do that. I always thought the hardest thing we had to overcome was the title Fight Club. Fight Club is, you know, completely male-oriented, and it promises Rocky when it delivers the anti-Rocky. And I thought it was going to be incredibly difficult to sell, and and it was. Um, I called David, like, Wednesday before the Friday opening and because, you know, the all the pre-opening research was negative. The marketing and distribution people had their work cut out for them. Here's David Fincher talking in 2014. The marketing department shit all over the movie and said, men don't want to see Brad Pitt with his shirt off and women don't want to see him bloody. So you're kind of fucked. Faced with a movie they thought would be nearly impossible to sell, the marketing department wanted to play it safe in the ad campaign. Stars, plot, fights. Fincher wanted to talk to potential moviegoers about Fight Club without, you know, talking about Fight Club. So he brought in an outside ad agency, Whedon and Kennedy, who came up with ideas like the now iconic image of a bar of pink soap and taglines like, works great even on bloodstains. Fincher loved the soap. The studio hated it. Cinematographer Jeff Cronenwith. I mean, in all fairness, I don't think they knew what they had or how to market it, right? Because it was—it's it, not—it's not, a, it's not a, 
a simple movie to to sell. Fincher and his team generated some of their own marketing materials that played up the movie's subversive tone without saying much of anything about the story. We made our own commercials with Brad and Ed. And they sang a song on the staircase. They, you know, uh, stood at the front of a movie theater and said, This is a non-smoking theater, so please, no smoking. At this time, please turn off all cell phones and pagers. And remember, no one has the right to touch you in your bathing suit area. You know, just things that were extremely irreverent and that served more of what the movie was about as opposed to the, the you know, the fighting. And that got thrown out. So I think we were shooting those spots in character of what the film was about and what we thought the film was about, what David wanted to say about the film in commercials and entice people to come see it. In the end, though, the studio decided to bet it all on men between 18 and 35 and cut trailers that made Fight Club look like an ultra-violent buddy comedy about dudes being dudes. So they devised a campaign for the film to sell it to people watching the World Wrestling Federation. Jeff Cronenweth again. I know for me, my parents probably wouldn't have seen it had they not known I shot it because they didn't want to go see a fight movie. And it was, it was the opposite of what everybody had talked about and what, what you know, the fears of Columbine and, and violence in, in, in the country at the, at the time. So it, it was mind-baffling as, as to why that approach was the one that, that won out. In fairness to the suits, though, there was probably no right way to market a movie like this through conventional channels in 1999. And in a sense, that meant that Fight Club had accomplished its mission regardless of what was about to happen or not happen at the box office. A movie probably shouldn't be that marketable if its message is that capitalism must be destroyed. And make no mistake, that was the message of Fight Club. When the studio did option it, and Jim was commissioned to write the screenplay. The first draft was very strong, except it didn't have an ending. In Chuck Palahniuk's Fight Club, Tyler's master plan is to blow up one building so that it falls on a museum, symbolically putting an end to the tyranny of history and civilization. He says, this is our world now, our world, and those ancient people are dead. I thought that was rather weak. One of the original Fight Club producers, Ross Grayson Bell. There is more debt than there is money in the world. And if all of us said, no, we're not going to pay, that's the end of capitalism. And I was $50,000 in debt on my credit cards. And I thought, well, what if we blew up the credit card companies? We could set everybody free. So in the film version, Project Mayhem's plan is to zero out consumer debt by blowing up credit card company buildings. The other big change the screenplay makes to the book is that in Polonek's version, Tyler's big end-of-history plan doesn't work. The bombs don't go off, and the book ends with the narrator apparently in a mental institution realizing that Project Mayhem has survived and will be waiting for him when he gets out. In some ways, Fincher's movie tacks on an almost sarcastically Hollywoodish ending. The narrator vanquishes Tyler Durden and gets the girl. And then the credit card buildings start blowing up and collapsing, and Marla and the narrator stand there watching them fall. Marla and the narrator will live happily ever after in whatever world Project Mayhem has just made. In 1999, by the way, 
the corporate offices of Rupert Murdoch's 20th Century Fox were located in the Fox Plaza Tower in LA's Century City. The building has appeared in movies before. Maybe most famously, it played the role of Nakatomi Plaza in the original Die Hard. In the opening scenes of another Fox movie, 1994's Speed, when Keanu Reeves and his SWAT team assemble in the lobby of a high-rise to rescue people from a booby-trapped elevator, that's actually Fox Plaza's lobby. And at the end of Fight Club, when the bombs go off and the pixies start singing Where Is My Mind, one of the towers that falls is Fox Plaza. This was Bill Mechanic's idea. The funny thing I got David to do was, because I really didn't like Murdoch very much, is that at the end when, I think he showed me some of the digital effects of the buildings coming down, I have to put Fox Plaza in it, so, which he did. So I got my own little vengeance, huh? It's in there, my little mark of uh, fuck you. Do you think he noticed, Rupert? Do you think he would have spotted that? Nah, (laughs) I'm sure he never even saw the movie. There are different narratives out there regarding whether Murdoch actually did see the movie or just decided to hate it on general principles. Either way, if you make a movie about how capitalism is ruining all our lives and your boss, the CEO of a giant conservative media company, thinks it's good, you've probably miscalculated. Even if Murdoch's beef with Fight Club was about its seeming lack of commercial potential rather than its message, the fact that he hated it was a form of creative success. It would turn out to be the last moment of success Fight Club experienced for kind of a while. And as the release date loomed, no one seemed more aware of this than David Fincher. Jeff Cronenweth. It was funny, like when we were timing the film, um, I remember like the whole journey... We're finally putting it together. We're in the elevator. And Fincher goes, get ready. I'm like, ready for what? He goes, they're going to come after us. I go, "Uh, come after me? Like, oh, yeah, they're going to come after you. I'm like, hang on. I trusted you going into this thing. What do you mean? He goes, it's big time now. They're going to come after all of us. Next episode. Fight Club explodes into and out of theaters. Choked, died, you know, we got leveled. Finds an audience of impressionable young Americans on DVD. So I believe I was home alone for like maybe the first time ever. And I made what I thought was a Bloody Mary, but it was just V8 and vodka. Then I got drunk alone for the first and last time ever and watched Fight Club. Anti-capitalism is in the air. Like, how do you take on this system that is trying to turn you into a cog in a consumerist machine and the rise of the corporations? This was a key moment. And men want to know one thing. How does this affect me? American history sees one cycle after another where various forces are threatening white masculinity. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. It's written and hosted by me, Alex Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Sabrina Fang and Taylor Jones. Our production assistant is Stella Hartman. Savannah Wright is our fact checker. Alex McGinnis is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Studio direction and theme music by Dan Leone. The executive producer is Ben Adair. Our editor is Jamie York. 
Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Jen Eleven is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Special thanks to Joe Paulson and Eric Spiegelman. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.